We're walking through the book of Genesis, which is made up of these two main parts. And the first part begins in the garden, where we watch humanity spiral downward in self-destruction. And it ends in the Tower of Babel, where a rebellious humanity is scattered by God. Then the second part of Genesis zooms in and focuses on just one family. And right in the middle is this story that links the two parts of Genesis together and helps us understand what the whole book is all about. So how do we get from the Tower of Babel to the story here in the middle? Well, after the scattering at Babel, there's this genealogy, and it follows one of the tribes all the way down to this one guy named Abram. You probably know him as Abraham. And God starts making all these promises to Abraham, like he's going to bless him and give him a ton of kids. And he says that through him and his family, all the nations of the earth are now going to find God's blessing. So basically, God is trying to restore humanity back to the goodness of the garden and to his original intentions for the world. So it's like his rescue plan for humanity. And that's why the whole second half of Genesis is about this one family. And so you have, you have Abraham, and then he has a son, Isaac, who has Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. And to each generation, God renews his promise to bless them and all nations through them. So because of this promise to use this family to rescue the world, it's pretty easy to read these stories as examples of how to be a good person. But actually, for the most part, this family is totally dysfunctional. So for example, let's go back to Abraham. This whole story is about God giving him and his wife Sarah a family, but two different times. He basically gives Sarah away to other men by denying that she's even his wife. And then Sarah gets impatient about having a son, and so she makes Abraham sleep with her servant girl, which then causes all of these other problems in the family. So they get really old, and you begin to think that there's no way they're going to have a kid of their own. But then, miraculously, they do. It's Isaac. And Isaac, he has two sons, Esau and Jacob, and it seems like things are going pretty good. But Jacob... The younger brother wants the family's inheritance, which belongs to Esau, the older brother. So he devises a plan where he's going to steal it from his father, Isaac, who at this point in the story is now old and blind. Which who does that horrible stealing from your blind father? Yeah, and then he just takes off. So Jacob goes on from there to have 12 sons, big family. But Jacob loves his 11th son, Joseph, way more than all the others. And so he gives him the special technicolor dream coat and his brothers because of this come to hate him so much so that they plan on killing him but they don't they instead just sell him as a slave down in egypt now while in egypt through this crazy series of events joseph goes from being in a prison cell to becoming the second in command there and so later on the the whole middle east falls into this food shortage and joseph's brothers they come down to egypt looking for food and then when they get there who should they find as the ruler of the whole land? It's Joseph, that guy they sold into slavery. But he actually saves them from starving to death. And so here you have it. These are the great-grandchildren of Abraham who have done this heinous act to their brother. But God has transformed their evil into something good. And that's exactly what Joseph says here in the last paragraph of the entire book. He says, you guys planned all of this for evil, but God planned it good to save people's lives now these words they conclude the book because they actually summarize the message of the whole story so far humans keep choosing evil and we are thinking they're they're screwing up god's 
plan, but he keeps turning their evil back into good. And somehow he's going to use this family to restore humanity back to the garden. So that's the book of Genesis. But we still don't know how exactly he's going to use this family to bring us back to the garden. Well, yeah, but this is just the first book. So that's what the rest of the Bible sets out to answer. This morning's scripture reading is found in Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 14. If you um, are reading out of your immersed Bible this morning, we'll be on page 80, um, down at the bottom of the page. Um, this is Genesis 50, starting at chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 50, starting at verse 14. After burying Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had accompanied him to his father's burial. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, Please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of God, of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Will you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for giving us the Bible. Thank you that through reading it, We can learn more about you and learn to love you more. Send your spirit to help us understand your word and to help us grow. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You intended to harm me. But God intended it all for good. That's a pretty amazing statement that you know Joseph makes at the end of the book of Genesis, towards the end of his life. You intended it to harm me, but God intended it all for good. So let's review. We just saw the video. It gives you kind of a brief overview, but let's review. Joseph grows up as one of 12 sons of Jacob's. And Joseph happens to be the stereotypical kind of chosen one. You know, the, the spoiled one, the favorite one. And um, he, which means he's a little bit full of himself and he's more than a little bit annoying uh, to his older brothers. He, he gets special privileges like the, 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 the coat of many colors we just saw. Uh, it'd be like if you were growing up in a home and, and you had to wear jeans and uh, Levi jeans and, and tattered T-shirts and you, one sibling gets to wear designer clothes worth than all of worth than more, more than all of your clothes combined. Uh, Joseph uh, also kind of shows a, a lack of self-awareness and sensitivity, which isn't unusual when you're when you're young. But he rubs his brothers the wrong way by telling them about a dream that he has, 
where he's going to rule over all of them and they end up bowing down before him. So there's a sibling rivalry going on, which is not unusual, but this sibling rivalry goes much, much too far. Uh, now, normally, if you have a problem with a little brother, what do you do? Um, you, you know, they bug you, you give them a little punch in the arm, you give them a noogie, you give them a wedgie, you insult them, you ignore them. That never happened in my home growing up, by the way. But, but in this case, it, it goes much beyond this. His brothers think of killing him. Actually, they come up with a plot to murder him. They throw him in a pit while they think over their options. They sell him into slavery in Egypt. And then they tell their father that, that his favorite son has been killed by wild animals. And Joseph is able to say, you meant this for evil against me. Now, now the word that's used here, meant for evil or intended for evil, it's, it, it's, it's connected to a Hebrew word which uh, means to weave or, or to braid, uh, to knit. I don't know a lot about those things, uh, but what I understand is when, in, in, when you weave, you take different threads, different colors, uh, and, you, and you weave them together and up and down and, until you end up with this tapestry or, or blanket or something that's, that's beautiful. And, and so he's saying it's kind of the reverse of this. Uh, you as my brothers took these different threads of, of, of jealousy and, and malice and hatred and, and bitterness and, and all this, and you wove it together, and it resulted in... It was meant to hurt me and to, and to cause me pain. But then he's able to say, but God. But God intervenes. And they use the same word in the Hebrew of God. In other words, God steps in where they weave it for evil. God steps in. He takes what they meant for evil and he turns it around and he weaves it into something that is good. Now, Joseph has a fascinating life when you look at his story. Um... He has a lot of highlights, but there's a lot of lowlights, too. Uh, he's a slave in Egypt. You know, we know he's betrayed by his brothers. Um, he's wrongfully accused of sexual assault by his boss's wife. And because of that, he's thrown into prison. But God works through circumstances and through a series of extraordinary events. Joseph rises to be second in command to Pharaoh. And then God directs Joseph through dreams to prepare for a great famine. And because of Joseph's actions, countless people are saved from starvation, including, ironically, the brothers who meant for him to be destroyed and their families. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. How could he say that? Let's look at his understanding of suffering. Evil comes at Joseph. But Joseph believes that God is on his throne. Joseph knows that God is, is sovereign and that God can take this and turn it into something positive and something good. Now, as we know from uh, the, back, the beginning of the Bible, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago when we started this walk through Immerse in, in Genesis, chapters 1 and 2 and 3, um, Satan's intent. God creates the world. He creates humanity. The crown of his creation calls it good, calls us good. Satan comes in, causes humanity to fall into sin. And, and, then, and, 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 then, and then God says this to Satan. He says, the, the seed of this woman, the offspring of this woman is going, to, is going to crush your head. You're going to bruise him, but he's going to crush your head. So God takes Satan's intent and he begins to weave this plan of salvation and redemption for creation, but, but for us as well. And so Satan now has to make a counter move. And he's thinking, well, if I can destroy and cut off this bloodline, this lineage, then, then, then the Christ can't come. 
the chosen one can't come. And, and so he begins to try to work in Jacob's family, in Abraham's family, the offspring of Adam and Eve, uh, to, to snuff things out before they can really form into a nation and a people. But God responds with another counter move. He takes this boy and he places him in, in, in Egypt in a place of and he rises through the ranks and he comes to a place where he can provide protection for for the people of Israel, a tribe of about 60 or 70 shepherd families at the time. And over the centuries, they then multiply into a nation of a million plus. So Satan makes his move. God counters. We see tragedy. We see prison in Joseph's life. We see wrongful, uh, wrong accusations. But God sees opportunity. God sees a boot camp of sorts where he can work through these things to to transform Joseph's character, to prepare him for his intended purpose. And so Joseph is able to look back at his life and say, what you, my brothers, intended for evil. God took all these things. He rewove them, refashioned them, and he used it for good. Not only my good, but your good as well in the lives of countless people. God took the mess and he made it into something good. Now, that's that's the promise that we find in the New Testament version of, of Genesis 50, verse 20. The New Testament version of this promise is in Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that all things work together for good according to excuse me and we know that all things work together for good to those who God who love God to those who are called according to his purpose God works in all things all things he takes the things of life individually they may be painful disappointing frustrating befuddling he takes all of these things and he works them together he weaves them together as part of a sovereign plan And he works it out for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. That's God's people. It may not be what we want. It may not be what we pray for. But God chooses to use these things for our good. Max Lucado illustrates uh, this concept uh, with this way. He writes, just about every morning, my wife and I sit out on the porch at our house and we look out over the beautiful Texas hill country and we enjoy a cup of coffee. And some of the first words I say every morning are, man, that's good. I drink the coffee and I say that's good. Now, what am I saying? Am I saying that a mug is good? Am I saying that the plastic wrapping around coffee beans is good? Am I saying the coffee grounds are good? Am I saying that hot water is good? No, I'm saying that you take all this stuff and you put it together in the right measurements with the proper ingredients under the proper care of someone who knows what they're doing And individually, they may not be great. I may not want these things individually. But when you put them all together at the right temperature with the right ingredients, good things happen. Now, do not mishear me. I'm not saying that the bad things that happen in our lives are are good. The Bible doesn't say that cancer is good or that broken marriages are good or that estranged relationships with children or loved ones is good or that financial ruin is good, or that death is good. You know, the Bible says those things stink, and they're, hurt, and they're hurtful, and they're painful. They're not part of God's intent. But here is the promise of the Bible. God can take that which is bad, and he can use it for good. And he can turn it into good. He can redeem it. He can, he can reclaim it. 
He can take what Satan brings and he can perform a, a sort of divine jujitsu of sorts. You know how jujitsu works? It's a Brazilian martial art. UFC fighters use it. And the idea is that it teaches you how to use your opponent's moves against them. Use their body weight or you counter with a certain move. And it actually ends up the move that they mean to defeat you or, to, or, or hurt you or mobilize you. you. You flip it on its head and in the end, they end up on their back in defeat and it leads to your victory and to your good. That's a rough analogy for what God does. The very things the devil means for evil will be recycled against the devil. The devil thinks that getting Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery is going to lead to the extension of God's plan for salvation through Abraham. But in the end, God deliciously flips it so that Joseph and his family not only survive, but they thrive. They're preserved. That which was intended for evil becomes ultimate good because God is sovereign and God never, ever abandons his throne. So here's my question for you. Could it be that what God did then for Joseph, he will do for you right now? That what is intended as evil, what is intended as tragedy, what is intended to hurt you, God can actually take that and counter Satan moves and use it to develop you and to strengthen you, to equip you, to prepare you, to advance the cause of God. So how do we prepare ourselves for that? How do we come to that place? Number one, when we find ourselves in the pit, like Joseph did, lay claim to the nearness of God. God gives us this promise. He says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The translation could be, I will not not leave or neither will I not not forsake you. That's five negatives. In other words, God is making a point. I will never leave you. I'm always there. I will not abandon you. You know, when we go through difficult times, what is one of the experiences we often have? I don't feel God. I don't understand what he's doing. I don't, I don't sense him. I don't feel like he's near. Well, here's a good rule of thumb. When you're passing through a tough time, you have to let God's truth, God's principles, God's word trump your emotions. We cannot trust our emotions. They're not always trustworthy. Tough things stir up all sorts of thoughts, distrust, a lack of faith, fear, worry, anxiety, all sorts of things. And sometimes we have to take our emotions outside and give them a good talking to. So whether or not God is near or not does not matter. What matters is that what God has said, and he has said that he is near. So do not equate a good mood or good circumstances with the presence of God. We can say things are going well, I feel blessed, God is near. But we can also and should also say, I feel cruddy, I feel crummy, I'm in pain, but God is near. Because how you feel does not determine the presence of God. So whether you're in the emergency room or the doctor's office or divorce court or bankruptcy court or in the cemetery... Remember, God is near. Lay claim to his presence with you. Number two, cling to his character. Uh, the, the prophet Jeremiah asserts, the Lord is good and his love endures forever. It's, that phrase is used over and over hundreds of times throughout the scriptures. So we are to make a list of everything we know that is good about God. We are to cling to it in the pit. For example, 
No matter what, God is still sovereign. No matter what, God still knows my name. No matter what, the angels still respond to his call. No matter what, the death of Christ on the cross still saves souls. No matter what, the Spirit of God still indwells his people. Heaven is still just a heartbeat away. God is still faithful. God is not caught off guard. God will use everything for his glory and his good. And the Bible says sorrow may come with the night, but joy always comes with the morning. So in the midst of a difficult time, rehearse and recite and cling to the characteristics of God. Thirdly, pray your pain out. You might think, what is, what's he talking, pray your pain out? You know, uh, when you look in the scriptures over and over again, you see examples of biblical characters who, who, who get a little bit upset with God at times. They express frustration to God. Where are you? Why do, is my neighbor who rejects you and mocks you, why is he thriving and, and I'm not? Why, why do the good and faithful sometimes die young? Or why are they persecuted? And why do the evil sometimes live long lives? Why? You see this through the Psalms. You see it through the Old Testament prophets. Uh, I mean, Jesus himself says, do I, do I have to go through the cross with the cross? It's okay to go to God and, and to vent. I mean, think about it. You know, when you, when you have a frustration with somebody and you, they don't meet your expectations, you have a couple choices. You can just stuff it. That's not good. Uh, or you can go and talk it out with them. And sometimes that might be a little bit heated, you know, because you're frustrated, you're hurt. Uh, but if you don't do that, what happens? Resentment begins to build. Distance begins to develop in that relationship over time. And eventually there's a break. Uh, Satan wants to drive a wedge between us and God during difficult times. He wants us to doubt God, to, to not trust God. To think that God does not have our, our good intents in mind or interest in, in mind. And so it's very important for us when we're going through a difficult time, a dark time, is to, is to persist, to, to go to God, to pray it out, to express our feelings to him and, and, and allow God to use it to draw us deeper. Because maybe in the midst of a difficult time, maybe, maybe there's several things going on. Maybe God wants to correct a misunderstanding we have of him. Or maybe he's allowing us to go through something difficult so that something can happen inside us, prepare us to help somebody else. Or maybe it could be that we're asking God to change our circumstances when really what we should be asking is that God would use our circumstances to change us. And for that to happen, we've got to be real with God. We've got to have a heart to heart. So it's okay to do that. So go ahead and and pray out. Those circumstances, your pain out, your frustration, your bewilderment. Because what Satan means for good, God can, Satan means for evil, God can turn to good. And so what that means is that whatever you're going through, you're going to get through it as you trust in God. It might take long, it's going to involve some pain, but God will get you through it. Because every page of the Bible, it seems, is filled with people who God gets them through something. A fiery furnace or the lion's den or persecution or challenges, storms, arguments, the valley of the shadow of death. God gets us through things. And so in the meantime, as we're waiting to see God's plan evolve and work in our lives, remember that God will not abandon you, that he will always be there for you. 
that he will get you through whatever you're facing and that whatever Satan intends for evil, God can take it and will turn it to good. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your presence with us. We are thankful for your promises to us. We thank you for what you do for us and what you do in us. Lord, we know that uh, many people here today may be discouraged uh, or, or wondering what you are doing in their lives. Um, and Lord, I believe that, uh, that you are sovereign. Lord, I believe your promises made in, in Romans 8.28 and, and also the, the perspective that Joseph had that uh, whatever Satan means to use in our lives to hurt us or harm us, Lord, that you can take those things and through your good and perfect will, through your timing, as we submit to you, Lord, you can turn those things around and, and weave it into something good. So, Lord, we trust in you. And we thank you and claim your presence and remember your characteristics. And we offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.